did I not see this coming? Hello and welcome back to the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay. It's great to be speaking with you again today. As you know, I've been putting out more episodes. I've gotten uh, more support from the listeners, which helps it make it so I can put out more episodes. So thank you for those who are donating and subscribing and giving me great reviews. It really helps me continue the work that, that I'm doing here. On this episode, we're going to be discussing some heavy topics. I'm going to be telling you a story that is deeply, deeply personal to me. I hope you'll allow me the space to be vulnerable in your ears. We've talked about many things on this podcast, covered the gamut of a wide variety of topics. Today, I want to tell you about the story of my abortion. Now, that's a strong word. The abortion debate has become so fraught, so loaded with extremism and propaganda, and I feel despair about it. And one of the critiques I get, and it's usually from men in my community, is, Lindsay, stop talking about politics. And when it comes to issues like this, I don't know how to stop. The personal is political. This is something that affects my life. The, the politics, the, the discourse in our country right now is so divided. Uh, I don't care where you land on some of these topics. You've obviously landed in some camp. We're, we're so divided. We're so separated from each other. And it's not the first, nor will it probably be the last time that America will be in such a space. But we are in it now. And if you're like me and you're paying attention, it can't feel good. I don't know anyone that's happy about it. If you are happy about it, God have mercy on us all. But I wanted to talk about this issue and how it relates to the topics we discuss on the podcast. I often struggle in my positions. And that's partially because I know and love and come from an extremely conservative community. Even though I have liberal views, I understand the concerns and fears of those who feel differently than me. I really, really do. They were real to me at one point and they are still real to people exist and I honor that. But that said, I've had enough life experiences that have challenged those beliefs and have shaped me in a way that that I couldn't help but change my mind on something. It doesn't mean I'm better than someone else. It doesn't mean that I think I'm more enlightened, so to speak. It just means I've had a different attitude. Several years ago, I was trying to have a baby. I'm a Mormon woman. I have three children. In the kind of Mormonism that I lived in, was brought up in three children is a small amount. I I had my first baby at 23. We waited till I was 23. We waited three years from my marriage to have a baby. And I thought that that was a responsible choice. But I remember getting a lot of pressure to have a baby right after. People told me I was selfish. People told me I had my priorities wrong. And I put it off as long as I could. And for me, three years was as long as I could possibly manage. And then I had my, my first son. And after that, I struggled to get pregnant. Um, I had o- overall, throughout the course of my life, I've had five miscarriages. One of the most devastating was um, an ectopic pregnancy. And if you know anything about ectopic pregnancies, it basically means that the, the fetus or the, the tissue, in my case, is growing outside the uterus. They had trouble locating it, in, in my case, for a long time. But basically, I got pregnant and... And the quote unquote baby was growing outside of the uterus, which means that it wasn't going to survive and neither would I if I allowed it to keep uh, growing. This is a dangerous situation to be in. It was no different for me. And so at the time, my very LDS devout Mormon doctor told me that I had to 
have a procedure that would basically stop the tissue from growing. They were going to give me methotrexate, which is a drug that they give cancer patients, and they would inject it. And I I guess I would have to, to lose that pregnancy. The news of it was devastating because at this point, after losing so many babies and having wanted them so badly and uh, going through this, it was it was a very painful time in my life. But it was made a lot more painful by this debate. I'll share the story in more detail as we get on into the interview today. But I will tell you this, that once I heard the word abortion used in, the, in my case, I tried to stop it. Um, I didn't want to have an abortion. I knew that abortion was wrong. I'd grown up my whole life hearing what a terrible thing it was. But it wasn't just terrible. It was ghastly. It was evil. It was wicked. It was something that, that like the bad women did. And I couldn't bear it. And I was willing to die to, to not go through with it. And my doctor was upset at me. I tried to call it off. And I remember the pain in my side where the tissue was growing was getting sharper every day. And I felt a lot of deep grief over the subject. So as we talk, you can hear more about that. But ultimately, I did go through with the procedure. I'm glad that I did. Now that I understand more, I understand what really was at risk and what would have happened. That was only one small issue that helped me change my mind. The other issue was learning about the hard realities of women. I, I grew up in, in a scenario where children were always wanted. There was never a time where pregnancy was a bad thing, even if it was, quote unquote, an unwed mother, which happened from time to time in my community. It was simple. Just give it up for adoption. Then I learned about stories where in different countries where limits of children were instituted or other laws that prohibited women from having full autonomy. They had to navigate these circumstances and it led to a lot of really cruel things. I I learned about situations where women were forced to carry to term in communities where adoption isn't an option. And you think about that, you're like, how could that happen? It exists. There are places in this world where the lives that we live from where we're listening and sitting, the options that we have are not available to people. When we hear these terrible stories about babies and dumpsters and children being left by the wayside, there are reasons for this. It's not just as simple as selfish cruelty of bad women. It's bad policies that force people to make bad choices. And we're seeing that now and we're seeing it here in a way that I've never seen in my lifetime. And so I want to I want to talk about it. So yes, I've changed my mind on this difficult topic. It didn't just take me going through it, but that absolutely has made the stakes higher for me. And I'll say this, for those who are uncomfortable that we're talking about this at all, there are many who support abortion who are really frustrated at the language that I use. They say it's too soft, it's not direct or radical enough. And I actually understand that too. When you've heard your experiences dismissed your entire life, anything other than hard, precise language sounds like posturing. And there's a lot of posturing around issues like this. Let's have some compassion for that viewpoint too, because we've all been traumatized and gaslit in our lives, told that our feelings don't matter. And when this happens, when our feelings are dismissed or when people try to talk to us out of something that we know, that we have felt, it, it can be so painful. And that's that's another thing that I think is interacting in our politics today. Trauma causes us to slip into black and white thinking. Having trauma is not a flaw. We all have it. And slipping into black and white thinking is just one of the ways that it helps protect our brain. It's a protection mechanism in our brain. And 
the, the discussion of abortion and reproductive rights carries a lot of trauma. The stakes can be so high and so painful. And here's the thing, the experience doesn't even have to be that dramatic. It can be as being slut-shamed as a woman. In this debate, there's a lot of talk about, oh, no, we can't wet- let women just have fun or enjoy their bodies or enjoy sex. You know, that's that's on one end of the spectrum. But it can also involve something like having your careers or aspirations dismissed, as it did in my community. It was selfish to want to put off having kids. I had a good job at the time. I didn't want to give that up. And I was made to think over and over and over by people in my community that I was being selfish for that. And even though I wanted to be a mother, looking back, I wouldn't have made the choices that I made now with the resources I have today. But at the time with the resources I had and the community support I had, I felt constant pressure to do it. And that causes a certain pain too, knowing that I didn't get to be a mother at the time when I chose and I put my body through some really harrowing things at a time that I don't think I was ready. So those things cause pain. That's just how it works. And I understand that my positions are not radical enough because, yeah, some people just want the right to have an abortion when they want it because they want it. That is enough. And that is a valid, valid reason. But like I said, I grew up in a conservative community. I understand this conversation. And I also understand dogma. And we talk a lot about dogmas on this podcast. And I'm determined to fight the impulse of dogma within myself, wherever it shows up. I'm not saying people on either side of this debate are always dogmatic. That is not true. Like I said, the personal is political and that makes us talk about things. But I definitely think the discourse happening around this issues can be dogmatic. And I can be plenty dogmatic. My unprocessed trauma prevents me from seeing things clearly sometimes. That happens with all of us and I am trying. But I cannot and I will not harden my language on a complicated issue like this. Abortion and reproductive rights are not simple. They are not easy. And if they were, we'd all agree. We don't argue about gravity, right? That's something that that we all understand. But this issue is complicated. It's complex. There are so many intersections, accommodations, considerations. And there are a lot of the, about this issue. I will admit, I'm not an expert on it. I don't even know and understand all of them myself, but I want to be open to hearing about them. So if I make a, mis- a misstep or a mistake in this podcast about how I am understanding or discussing the issue that you think brings real harm to the conversation, I'm open to hearing about it. And it's also true that there are radicals on both sides of the debate. The politics in my country and in the world right now are very brittle, very bifurcated. Online discourse is particularly difficult to talk about hard issues. We're so mean to each other. There's no compassion. There's no allowance for mistake. There's a lot of demands for purity in the way that we talk. And that's upsetting to me. I grew up in purity culture. It's harmful. We need to allow for people to not be perfect in the way they discuss very complicated things. I'm determined to not be dogmatic to things that matter the most to me because I think that's where the danger is. I do not support abortion and women's right to choose because I want to support radical ideas. I actually don't think it's radical. I don't think my position is radical. I think my position, like I said, to so many is not radical enough. I support the right of women and marginalized genders to have access to reproductive rights. That's it. That that shouldn't be radical. People should be able to make choices about 
themselves. And I believe that my position is reasonable. And maybe that's the problem is we all think that our position is reasonable. But if we can't allow ourselves to hear other people's point of views on this, then I don't think that that is reasonable. I think that I, in my position, in allowing women and, you know, folks of any marginalized gender to have access to this is the kindest thing I can think of because it's so complicated, so painful, so difficult as decisions about life, death and human suffering are. This one is complicated. And yes, I know it's about so much more. There are a hundred complexities to consider, which is why I choose deliberately to not be radical. I must be reasonable. I'm sorry if my language doesn't go far enough on either side for you. And I would say this, I want to talk to my fundamentalist friends for a minute who I know if they've made it this far are shifting in their seats, they're feeling uncomfortable. When I advocated for you, when I agitated towards and put my own personal body and credibility on the line to decriminalize polygamy, I did so for the same reasons. I did it to be reasonable. I didn't do it for the extremists. I didn't do it for the polygamous groups who marry children and underage girls. I didn't do it to support extremists who practice incest. I put my support behind this and fought for it publicly for you, for the consenting, reasonable adults. There are radicals in every debate. There are extremists on every side of the issue. There are people whose unprocessed trauma take things too far. Humans and their trauma are complex and black and white. And like I say over and over again, unprocessed trauma makes people do extreme, unspeakable things. Unprocessed trauma leads to more pain nearly every time all the time. And I'm not going to organize around it. I'm not going to back down from reasonable choices for reasonable people because of the dangers of extremists. So to my polygamous friends, to my fundamentalist friends, I'll say this. I fought for you on this. I heard your stories. I heard your sincere convictions. And when you told me about your stories, I believed you. I believed the choices you made for your families. I do not agree with the doctrines that back them up. I've been quite clear on that. I do not believe polygamy is a divine commandment from God. I think it's ultimately harmful to women, and I will never choose it for myself. But I don't honor my feelings above your sincere convictions either. I hold space that you you and I disagree and I have enough respect for you to believe you in your experiences. So I'm asking people that disagree with me, will you do the same for me? Can we find reasonable ways to talk about hard things like this? I've shared the vulnerable story of my own abortion, and it's so tricky because my situation seems pretty benign to Mormons. This is the hard part. People will say, oh, well, your life was at stake. Like, it's... Of course, of course, in that situation, of course, the pregnancy would have killed me and I would and it wouldn't have been viable. So that's pretty easy. The moral choices aren't that complex here. But if we're going to do this, if we're going to be reasonable, we're not talking about extreme stories. The extreme stories in the abortion debate are these, you know, loose, promiscuous women who are selfish and just want to have abortions to get out of their own personal accountability. That's the propaganda in the discussion. But there are more complexities outside my own experience that are worth considering, just as there are in the polygamy discussion. Like I said, not every polygamist is Warren Jeffs. And not every abortion is some selfish woman who has an abortion punch card and likes to kill babies. We don't organize around that sort of dysfunction. We organize around the complexities of the experiences of others. And those are the stories that I want to talk about today. So that's a long preamble, but I I was giving it because it's important because my guest today is someone who knows about the dogma in which we are talking about today. She grew up in the FLDS and knows what this radical extremism is. 
She grew up in the worst case scenario. And I asked her to come on to talk about this because, as you know, Roe versus Wade has been struck down in the courts. I never thought I'd see that in my lifetime. Honestly, I've been taking it for granted. I think my generation just thought it was a given. And that that day that it happened, um, I, I felt genuine despair. I don't know how else to say it. Uh, a feeling lower than sadness. And I think a lot of women who understand the complexities of this issue felt that as well. And I was scrolling through social media and I saw this woman, her name's Faith, Faith's post. And it was a picture of Faith at about 17 years old in her FLDS dress, her prairie dress, the one that everyone knows associates with Warren Jeffs. And she simply just said, I'll die before I go back to this. And the conviction in, in her voice really spoke to me, and I thought it was really powerful because when the Roe v. Wade ruling dropped, I was unprepared for how hard I would take it. I've been carrying it around physically in my body, and I'm grieving about it. And her post really, really said something visually to me that I couldn't explain in my gut. And I, you know what? I feel silly almost. I'm young enough to not know a world where Roe v. Wade didn't exist I don't think I knew how lucky I was until it was gone. And it's a cliche, but here we are. And the decisions were leaked and we had a warning, but I never imagined it would come. I don't know how you felt, but I just, I don't know. I, I thought it, we would be more reasonable than this. But now I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it on a soul level and it hurts me. It hurts me to know that methotrexate, that, that drug that was administered to me during my abortion, which is also used to fight cancer, is now not being given to some women in some states because of this. And it has nothing to do with even their reproductive health. They're limiting it. The impacts of this are reaching farther than we could have ever imagined. Women who take it for other reasons than abortion are suddenly not even getting access to their own medicine because this medicine is used to stop tissue cells, like those that were growing outside my uterus from developing. And I haven't been able to stop thinking about the many, many stories I heard of Mormon women and their abortions. And in this work that I've done in the history, we've seen it, you know, we've talked about early Mormon history where it's likely women in Nauvoo were getting abortions and that's controversial because abortion is controversial. But the reality is there were hundred percent women getting abortions in every community because there always have been. It's not new. It's not an invention of radical feminism or liberalism. Abortions have existed as long as human beings have existed. And those stories I've been carrying with me, I've been thinking so much about the stories I've heard about women in our Mormon communities. They've been haunting me. I, they're, they're they're present with me always and about how this decision is going to compound their suffering, how this decision is going to make things so much worse. It is already so hard to get resources to women in our communities to help them fight their battles every day. And this just feels like it's made it impossible. And these are not the radical, dogmatic, scare stories you see in memes with dead fetuses and slutty women. These are young mothers rape victims, plural wives. These are women who want babies. These are women in situations that you don't consider because you couldn't even imagine them and you don't know about them until you're in those shoes because you've never had to make those choices. And I hope that you'll listen and follow through with me on this. I think this struggle is a conversation that belongs to all of us. I think it's one that's essential to the human experience. And I hope, at the very least, my hope for this, I'm going to tell you my agenda right at the beginning, is at the very least, you will 
have at least a little bit more compassion for the diversity of experiences. I hope that you will understand it's more complicated than the discussion seems to make it. Line, who is going to come tell her story and talk about this issue with me on the podcast. Faith really got my attention with a Facebook post, which I've discussed earlier. And so I want to talk to her about that and why she posted it. But first, Faith, thanks for coming on the Year of Polygamy podcast. You're welcome. So why don't you tell us who you are? Okay. So uh, my name is Faith Beisline. Um, I was born and raised in the FLDS in Colorado City, Arizona. I'm from a polygamist family. I have three moms and 28 siblings. I'm the ninth child in my family. And also I have 21 brothers <laughs> and six sisters. So the uh, difference between how men and women were treated was very obvious starting from you know when I was born. At the age of 19, then I left polygamy. Um, I moved to North Dakota where I went to nursing school and now I live in Las Vegas and I work as an ER nurse. So that's my story. I appreciate it. And can you explain what your post was so people can understand? Cause it's hard, you know, not to see it visually, but everyone kind of understands the prairie dress, the FLDS dress, but kind of explain what you posted the other day. Yeah. So with the overturning of Roe versus Wade, um, it felt very I felt like we were going towards something that felt very familiar to me. And that is uh, living in a system where I could not control my own body with the FLDS. To me, that's a symbol uh, that someone else owns my body. And so that's the reason why I posted that picture. It was, I really appreciated it. It was really powerful for me because that day I was feeling really, just really strong, complicated feelings you know, in regards to my own situation and in regards to, you know, my own abortion and thinking about what that would have meant for me. And it's almost like, I, I don't know if you feel this way, but I don't think I realized how good we had it until we lost it. Right. Right. Do you want to kind of talk about how you grew up understanding abortion, that the idea of abortion? Yeah. So um, abortion wasn't ever even mentioned really growing up. Um, We didn't even talk about it. That was like so off the table that it was never even brought up. The reason that I feel the way that I do is because the FLDS has some very strong beliefs when it comes to men and women. And um, the first one is that they're not equal. And the second one is that women belong to men. Literally in the marriage ceremony, they ask the woman, do you give yourself to this man? And thirdly, a woman's entire value is placed on her ability to produce children. So those, those, um, those were common themes growing up. And uh, that's kind of the basis for the reason that I feel the way that I do. I mean, I have a couple of, exa- of examples I could give. Yeah, I would, I would like to hear that because I think for you and I who, who grew up in a patriarchal culture, and obviously yours was a lot more acute than mine, but in some ways there are a lot of similarities. Other ways there are some big, important differences. Roe v. Wade being overturned feels like that to us, that we yeah. don't, yeah. that it's just about our, our ability to produce children and all of that. But maybe what would you say to people who say, uh, those are two different things, uh, a baby, it's, it's your body until there's a baby involved and it's not your body anymore. What do I say to those people? 
Yeah. What would you say to that? Well, I, I like to say that, um, well, one of my favorite things to say is that um, it always comes down to consent. So no one gets to use your body without your consent. No one, not even a fetus. So it does not matter if it's someone else's body. If they're living off of your body, then you get to have say on what happens. I really appreciate that. And, and consent was not something that you or I were taught. In fact, it was opposite, at least, you know, in my case. And again, I don't want to compare our experiences as, as totally analogous, but we are here for our families, for our husbands, for God and for our children. You know, I very rarely heard about me being here for me. <laughs> my yeah. Yeah. Here for me. So yeah, let's, let's get into the stories. Let's get into some of the experiences you've heard about. Okay. Talk to us about, about some of the things that sort of shaped your views on this. Okay. Um, so there were, there were several things. A, a lot of where my view comes from is, uh, it mostly comes from like women being treated less than and not being able to, you know, have say over their own bodies. So I don't have a, like a lot of abortion stories or anything like that, but I do have a lot of, a lot of stories of where women were not valued as equal with men. So that's where a lot of my viewpoint comes from. Yeah. T- yeah. Tell me that. And, um, we can sort of, I, when we talked about the format, I, I said, I could share some stories that I know. So if, yeah. if your stories remind me of abortion stories, if that's okay, then I'll sort of compare them to the stories so we can draw those parallels for people. Cause like I said, it's obvious if you, if you've lived it and you're paying attention, but I think that there are some communities where it's so normalized you know, that women don't have autonomy, that people don't pay attention to that. Right. So, yeah. So um, I remember when I was very young, probably about 10 years old, I had like a piece of toast. This is like a really like, it's, I don't know, it's like such a small story, but it it made such an impact on me. Um, And I was putting margarine on it. And my second mom saw me doing that. And she said, you better throw that away or else it's going to make it so that you can't have children. And it terrified me at the time because even at that young age, I had already realized that my entire value was my ability to produce children. So that's that's probably one of the first things that happened to me where um, it just made me go, what? Like, <laughs> this is this is not right. So I, I did, I threw it away and I got like a whole new piece of toast and I put butter on it instead of margarine. <laughs> oh, so sad because I, you know... <laughs> I had an experience like that when I've been very open that I've struggled with a lot of eating disorder issues. It's part of perfection culture. It's part of the the narratives we grew up with. It's just part of my biology. And I remember when I was young, I was a teenager and I was starting to restrict food. My, the caretakers in my life, the people who are trying to help me, the only way that they understood was to sort of threaten me. And so they said, if you do this to your body, you're never going to be able to have kids. And I remember feeling such grief over that because I was struggling with this issue and it was disordered and I couldn't stop it. But now I've got that on the mix that now my whole life's purpose is thrown away. Like it was, it was confusing and it was painful, but that shows the gamut. Like you're just doing something totally regular, benign. Mm -hmm. And both of them have to do with food, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, those, those narratives and scripts were taught to us as like a threat. Like it's almost as if our bodies always in that moment are for a future baby, not for us. Yep. Yeah. That was always the way it was growing up. And then another thing I wanted to talk about is growing up, 
it was always taught to us that our like our ability to bear children and the whole process of pregnancy, labor and delivery and all that, it was all a curse because when Adam and Eve, when Eve ate the apple, it was a curse. So we were cursed to produce children. And that's like such a backwards way of thinking to me now. <laughs> but like, that's that's literally what we were taught growing up. And like, even my dad, I remember him explaining that, that the mothers, they, they walk through the shadow of death when they produce children. And that was a curse because they're paying for Eve. That's so interesting. Yeah. We had similar scripts, you know, like the curse of Eve and the idea of like how, and I would say we were framed, like, isn't it cool that you get to be blessed to uh, almost die for your children, right? As right. A, this Christ-like figure. And I would say that feels good until you're actually on the table or if you have little <laughs> ones at home. Oh my gosh. Um, I mean, there's some other things like um, whenever a woman died at her funeral, they wouldn't even talk about her. They'd talk about her husband. You know, it was like her entire identity was tied into her husband or her father, you know, that doesn't have to do with childbirth as much, but no, just but just erases a woman's personhood. Right. Right. And then how, like, um, like my father's birthday was like a huge event every year. Like we all got new outfits. We put on a program, you know, it was a big thing, but then the, the mom's birthdays, like we often forgot about them completely. <laughs> it's like, I've heard about that. I've, and you know what it reminds me of is like Brigham Young. If you go down to his grave, he's got this big, huge monument. And then, you know, a lot, there have been efforts made since this problem has come to light, but a lot of the wives, you know, had these like decaying tiny little headstones. And then they just found that they're like unmarked graves there. They just buried some of the women next to him. They don't even get a name. And you lived that like that. That's something you <laughs> lived, and I think for people thinking about that, when they when they hear when they watch documentaries like Keep Sweet, and they're you know all around America, people are horrified for what you went through in the FLDS, but they don't realize that this law is doing a similar thing. Right. It's it's erasing you. It's erasing your wants, your integrity, your dignity, what you want out of your life. And I love what you said about consent because I think that that's really true. Yeah, that's what I like in my head because I have so many feelings about it, but I feel like it all boils down to that one statement about consent. Talk that's about consent. I mean, we we often talk it in, in terms of like I guess the extreme would be rape, which of course in your community and in my community are something that happens. I think. I think especially under Warren Jeffs's rule, you guys dealt with it in an institutionalized way, probably a lot more than my culture in the mainstream did. But talk about how your views of consent were formed and what that looked like to you as a as a girl growing up in the FLDS. Um, consent was I didn't I didn't really like growing up. I, I didn't have I didn't have the power to give consent. That wasn't up to me to do. That was up to my dad. My dad would give consent for me or my husband would give consent for me because my identity was tied into the man in my life. So on, on a specific level, like what, what would that mean? Like, what would your dad consent to marry? Obviously that's a big one, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So he would decide when I was ready to be married. Um, but even before that, he would decide when I was ready to be baptized, you know, he would decide you know, when I was ready to go to school, like, like all of that stuff, like I didn't, I didn't get to decide any of it. 
And so what would happen if you, I mean, was it ever, did you ever see it happen where anyone said, you know what, I don't want to get baptized or I don't feel ready yet. Any of that ever happen? Um, no, I never saw that. I never saw that happen as a child. No, I didn't either. We, if people ask me that now, cause in LDS rhetoric, it's like, oh, my, my son is choosing, or my daughter is choosing to be baptized. And I remember thinking like, nobody asked me, I think the bishop <laughs> says, are you ready to be baptized? And of course you say yes, because you're in an interview with everybody and all your friends are doing it. And there's never an option to not. It's like a social norm or like, you know, it's, it's expected of you. Yeah. It's like saying, you know, are you going to go to sleep at night? Yes. Cause that's <laughs> what we do. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's so interesting. Yeah. When you, when you say it that way, that's what I, what I really appreciate about how you're talking about this is a lot of LDS people in my community think that the FLDS is so extreme in every way. And actually it's not that different. And so when you're sharing these stories, it's like, oh my gosh, wait a minute. We did that too. Yeah. Yeah. I like how the, how the LDS tries to uh, make themselves seem like they're, they'll always say, oh, we're not affiliated at all. There's no similarities to the FLDS, but the fundamental, like the, the basic layer of the religion is the exact same. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in, in our culture, it would probably, I mean, at least in my experience, the, our mothers decided those things for us too, but maybe you, did you feel like that too? Or was it really like the men made all of the decisions? It was the men that made all the decisions because they, they spoke for the mom, for my moms too. Like there's, there's another minor story that comes to mind. Um, I remember my dad, he was just eating dinner at the table one day and my mom came up with this piece of fabric. She wanted to make herself a dress out of, and she held it up to him and she said, Hey, Liddell, is it okay if I make myself a dress out of this? And he just glanced at it and he said, nope, it's too busy because I had flowers on it. And she's like, okay. And she took it and walt- like put it in a ball and threw it in the trash. Oh, wow. So it was just like normal. It was just commonplace yeah. to yeah. run everything by him. Did you ever hear of stories like cautionary tales of where a woman defied her husband? Like what, what were the things that kept that? that structure in place other than the fact that we just talked about it, it was like the air you breathe that's everyone's doing it but what happens when someone didn't follow the rules um i mean a lot of times they would get kicked out you know especially when warren took over that was that became a really common yeah some sometimes the women would even get kicked out for miscarriages and stuff like that yeah, I know yeah. talk about miscarriages cuz flds i think is extreme at least in my community we have, I would say, a gentler doctrine around it than Warren Jeffs instituted. But talk about the the idea of miscarriage in, in the FLDS. Okay, so prior to Warren taking over, miscarriages were just you know natural things that happened sometimes. You know, they were accepted as as natural. Um, but then when Warren took over, he started talking about how miscarriages were the murder of the unborn children, and he would blame the women who had the miscarriages. And he started kicking them out and they would lose their entire family over a miscarriage. Yeah. I I actually talked to a woman who this happened to, and I can hear, you know, evangelicals pro-choice evangelicals argument in my head right now. They're saying, well, good. You got kicked out of the FLDS. That's a good thing. What they don't realize is you lose everything. You lose access to your children. You lose 
your money, you lose transportation if you're a woman in a lot of cases. It's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. So so women having miscarriages, was there ever any talk amongst women that you know of where it's like someone had a miscarriage and they knew it wasn't their fault? Or was it just accepted that this new doctrine must be God's word? Yeah, we just accepted it because to us, Warren, Warren's word was God's word. Like it was just coming through Warren. So we just accepted whatever he said. One of my previous interviews is, I think it's Sarah Allred who talks about this experience where she, Warren calls her in and says, you have, the Lord has revealed to me that you have been a murderer. She's like, what? And he says, yeah, you've had a miscarriage. And she was like, I wasn't even pregnant. (laughs) It didn't happen. And I just think like that is so that kind of control that we're talking about, it seems so extreme and acute, but really that's what we're feeling. That's what this, this law is, is causing you to feel in your body because for you, the stakes were the worst case scenario. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I don't want to live in a world where, you know, if my sisters ever get out of that, they're just like going into another environment where it's still the social norm, you know? Yeah. So some, I, do you have more stories to share? Cause I want you to share those first. And then I would, I thought I could talk to you about some FLDS stories I've heard and you can kind of commentate on those if you want. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So some of the FLDS stories that I wanted to talk about, um, I've been thinking about it because I've heard both. So I've heard stories of women in extreme cases who got pregnant through rape or incest or, from another man or or whatever situations. And it was sister wives or their actual sisters or women in the community that helped them obtain secret abortion. So there's those stories on the one hand, and then there's the stories of the women who didn't. And so I want to kind of play those through for people. So they understand the reality of what this issue is, because I think there's so much propaganda out there. I remember as just a faithful LDS woman, woman, not thinking about this to me, it was just, it was so simple. Like, why would you kill a baby? Everybody yeah. wants a baby, right? <laughs> there are these beautiful, they smell sweet and these cute pictures. And it's a little bit different than that. So the first scenario I want to run by you is, and I heard a story of a woman And I'm going to leave out all of the identities, obviously, but she was in the FLDS and she was married to a patriarch who was a leader in the FLDS community. He had clout, he had prominence. And she, this woman was raped by another man in the community. And it was like a violent rape. It was a very traumatic experience for her. Mm -hmm. And she knew that if that came out, it would do a lot of harm to her family she would be blamed for it. There, The circumstances, I think she, she had broken a rule and I'm trying to remember. So she was so worried it was going to come back on her. Anyway, so she gets pregnant and some of the women in the community help her go get an abortion basically. And that saved her life. And for a year she hid this. And this, this was a, a story that had happened, I think back in the late nineties. And so she was able to, to kind of go on with her life and survive from that. And so I'm wondering how that story lands for you. And if abortions aren't available, what that, that would have meant for a woman like her. It's crazy that, that, that FLDS women 
even saw that as an option to help her get an abortion. I'm super grateful to them. I'm like proud of them, but it's crazy to think that that was even a possibility that that, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I I thought so too. But then I've been thinking of, there are women in, in our communities, in the most like devout communities that kind of understand on a bone level, you know, when someone is assaulted or whatever, that it's not their fault. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't know. I, I've thought about that too. I know of um in the LDS community, several stories where women that one of them in particular was a woman. It surprised me because it was a woman that I had known as a child growing up and I would have never thought she would have even been open to it. But mm-hmm. when she was in that situation, it kind of changes things. Right. Mm-hmm. So let me tell you another story that I had heard. And this is one that didn't turn out so well. And I feel complicated telling about this because she was 10 years old when she was um, assaulted, gang raped by three of her half brothers. So she doesn't know who impregnated her, but it was so normalized at the time in her, in her family that she, she, yeah, she just didn't kind of know what's going on. And she actually, it's the youngest baby I've ever heard of being born. And it was born within the FLDS and it was kind of hush, hush. The baby was given to someone else. And I think about what would her life have been like if she had had access to an abortion, because really what had happened was basically she has this baby at 10. It, even though it's hushed, hushed, it becomes known pretty quickly. She gets married quite young and starts having, I think her next baby she had was at 14, 14 or 15. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's just devastating to think about. Oh my God. Yeah. That's horrible. That's horrible. How traumatic, you know, and she's going to be affected for the rest of her life. Like how do the rest of her life? Yeah. How do you, how do you heal from that? That's, that's the part that's really hard for me too, because I, you know, I've talked to, so here's some more scenarios and this is in both of our cultures, this idea of women who are assaulted. We know assault happens in our communities. Um, In, in your case, it's institutionalized when people are forced to marry someone, right? Mm-hmm. And, and luckily in our case, it's not that extreme, but obviously we, you know, rape and assault is part of our culture, but I've heard some pretty harrowing stories of women who are raped and then forced to carry to term. Mm-hmm. And I can't, that, that seems like a nightmare to me. So the biggest thing to me, um, in the FLDS with uh women not having choices is that there was like a lot of a lot of genetic issues that happened because a woman was not given a choice, right? Wasn't given control of her reproduction. Like I have several cousins actually who are severely developmentally delayed and their moms would have, you know, multiple children with all this, with the same, with the same issues. And they required 24 hour care, constant seizures. Like they can't walk, they can't talk, they can't eat, but they were, the women were just pushed to continue having kids regardless, because it was all about, you know, what, what can we do to help to make, you know, you have more kids. It doesn't matter how they come out. And so the, the thing that like blows my mind the most is that, yeah, it's a given that the FLDS didn't care if the women suffered, but the children suffered too. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and then think about this, not just the children, but the siblings who are now they're they're sharing a life of bifurcating their parents' attention um, with these like extreme needs and health issues. And anyone that is a caretaker 
of someone who is ill in a family that that takes a toll on the whole family. Yeah. And there was, and when there's like multiple of them, like how, how do any of the other children get any attention at all? You know, that that's exactly right. Which is already an issue, right. In the communities where there's a lot of kids that feel like they had to share their parents' affection. They didn't get a lot of time. I've talked Mm -hmm. to a lot of FLDS boys in particular, when we want to talk about how this affects boys, like in, in patriarchal communities, sometimes they get neglected the most because they're supposed to be somehow naturally intuitively more responsible for some reason. And yeah, that's really, that's sort of the other side of the coin as you're spending all this time controlling women's choices Mm -hmm. and what are the boys doing? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think you're prepared to like talk about how it could affect men in the community? Did you see how it empowered men to be more abusive? Do you think that it gave men the wrong idea about women? Yeah, definitely. I think it gave, I, get, I think it gave uh, men the idea that women were weak and that, you know, our value was just incubators that we weren't as smart as them, that we couldn't contribute our, you know, thoughts and ideas on any intellectual level. I think that's right. Yeah. So I I think it affected them in that way. And a lot of times it's like, it's hard to blame them because they're raised in this environment where they're taught that, you know, their whole life, it's a very difficult situation. In in our community, we were allowed to dance. We had like what we call steak dances where boys and girls that are youth age would get together and go to dances. And one of the rules in our household and sort of the culture that we were taught in our youth groups was we're not allowed to say no to a boy. If he asks us to dance, that it took him so much courage to ask us that we couldn't humiliate him or embarrass him. Oh, wow. So yeah, that was one of our things. And that really, that one really got to me. It was very difficult for me to, it's still difficult for me actually to tell men in my, to like disappoint men in my community. Right. Yeah. Because I was taught to caretake their feelings. Do you feel like you did that as well in other ways that you were taught to be responsible for their feelings, for their expectations? Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. It was, it was all about the men. You know, I put all, I put everything that I'm thinking and feeling on the back shelf and just do, you know, cater to whatever they're thinking and feeling. So yeah, there was definitely that, all that going on. And on the one hand, we're losing autonomy to to, to the men in our lives, to the partners in our lives, to uh, parents, co-parents, whatever. But you think about how we lose the autonomy to our children in this, this sort of idea too. If the, if the baby now is the priority and the woman is just the incubator, how do you remember stories of seeing the mothers in your society, your own mothers, the women in your communities disappear for their children? For us, it was like such a a badge of honor to like sacrifice everything for your children. And I saw women suffer under that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a big sister. She got married when I was about six years old and just disappeared like that. Just Mm. gone. I don't even know her as a person because of that. Like we didn't, we didn't hang out ever. And she has like seven kids. I don't know any of them. I mean, I know names. But yeah, her, her whole, you know, duty in life was to her husband and she was supposed to leave her, you know, her siblings behind and just embrace that. And yeah, she used to be, she was like a very talented violin player and, you know, in the community, she'd be a part of community events when she got married and had kids, all of that went away, all of it. 
And, and it's all just about her parenting. And so then what happens this, this I think is an interesting phenomenon in your culture. Cause in our culture, it happens too. like, I feel like we share a lot of the same things, but it's on a spectrum. And in the FLDS, it's a little bit more <laughs> dialed up. Sometimes it's a lot more dialed up, but like women after they stop bearing children and their children are grown in my culture, at least, at least in the the LDS culture that I grew up in, women sort of disappear. They sort of um, are supposed to become old grandmothers that complain that their grandkids never see them and and have no life outside of that. What talk about what happens to elderly women in your community? Um, yeah, I think some of the same things. I don't know if you know about um, Sam Bateman. Yeah, actually, you can talk about it unless you don't want to be the one to talk about it. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll, well, talk, can, I'll talk, yeah. talk about him. So okay. it's interesting because he's married every single one of my sisters. Oh, wow. I'm also, so sorry. Yeah. He's also started to marry my mom's, but he didn't marry the oldest mom. And I don't know if it's because he doesn't, he doesn't see her value because she can't produce children anymore. Well, can you, if you, if you want to leave this, can you back up and kind of explain to people who Sam Bateman is? Cause I actually haven't talked about what's been going on with him. So are you comfortable talking about that? How he sort of, now that Warren's losing power, who he is and how that's going on. Yeah. So Sam Bateman is an FLDS man. Um, he was born and raised there as far as I know, who's born there, but he, um, him and um, another FLDS man named Moroni Johnson got together and decided to kind of break away from Warren Jeff's religion, kind of started their own thing. And they were able to convert my family to join them. But the thing is my family, they believe very devoutly in Warren. And so he convinced them that Warren Jeff's has died. Oh, wow. And that he is the new prophet. And, and so, so, and they don't really have a way to verify, right? Cause they're no. not reading newspapers or listening to the news, right? They have no access to any outside information. They're not allowed to get on the internet and research stuff. You know, they, they can't, they're, they're not allowed to do anything. And like, so they're very isolated. Their information is cut off. So yeah, they believe him. <laughs> Faith, I'm so sorry because when you said Samuel Bateman, uh, a chill kind of ran through me because I've been hearing horror stories about what he's doing in the last several years it, on the one hand when you hear that people break away from Warren Jeffs you're like good you know they have a conscience they're thinking he's bad but you never think that they're doing it to recreate or just make it worse right yeah exactly so talk about kind of the stuff that Sam is doing and what's concerning about their belief system so Sam had a family prior to all of this going down he had a wife and he had a daughter that he tried to marry when she was 13. He went to her mom and said, she believes, or she belongs to me or went to the daughter or somebody and said, she belongs to me as a wife. And um, his wife said, Oh no, she doesn't. And <laughs> left him. And so um, he has a history. He has a history like this. And he came into my family and he married my little sisters. Um, there's rumors that he's married to my, you know, 10 and 12 year old nieces. And also Moroni Johnson's daughters. Oh my yeah. gosh. I'm so sorry. Yeah. So when you hear this, you think about not just how, I mean, in a, in a perfect world, at least for me, it would be where women would have all this consent and autonomy, but this is 
this is what we're talking about. This is kind of the the worst case scenarios, our worst nightmares yeah. of when women are considered property because I'm sure he's using, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, the doctrines that marriage and family are the most important things, that women mm-hmm. are supposed to be wives and mothers mm-hmm. to justify marrying these young girls. Right. And he's he's... I, I feel like he's manipulating them into, cause he keeps saying things like they're at, they're asking to marry him. Right. They're, oh, he's like, oh, they came to me. They wanted it. Right. But the way it went down with my little sister, she was the first one to marry him. He like approached her and he said, do you have something to say to me? And she was like, what do you mean? <laughs> and he's like, I'll give you a few days to think about it. And so then he came back a few days. And of course, you know, women in the FLDS are raised to think, you know, my whole purpose in life is to get married and have children. So of course her mind, you know, goes there. And so he comes back and she's like, I think I'm supposed to marry you. But she's also sees all these other girls doing it. So that like, I, I don't know. It's yeah, maybe she did consent, but I, I feel like I feel like it wasn't very informed consent. Yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, that's why we have ages of consent, because A civilized society understands that children developmentally cannot make decisions with the same autonomy. I mean, children very literally still depend on uh, the adults in their life. They don't have power or control over their situation and they're at the mercy of that. And so right away, that that imbalance puts the consent issue completely at odds. She right. There's children can't consent. Like, even if they're saying yes, I mean, and I'm talking children up until you're 18. And this is, this is the frustrating thing because this happens in other Mormon groups and it happens in my, my group as well, too. You'll have people say they're choosing to get married They're You know, a lot of fundamentalists will say the, the women choose it. I've talked to a lot of FLDS women now who are women who said, if you would have asked me at 14, I would have told you I wanted to get married because that's what they taught us since we were babies to want. And good girls said that that's what the good girls said. I wanted to get married at 12 years old. I wanted that more than anything in this world. Did you guys like, like for us, our youth activities, we planned our weddings over and over and over. We had wedding fashion shows. We club clipped it out of magazines, which I'm sure you guys didn't do. No. How did you, I mean, I've heard some terrible ways FLDS prepare for marriage, but how were you like preparing for it at a young age? I wasn't like, they were just, you know, my whole life was just, you know, just, you know, be good. Oh, I guess home economic classes in, in grade school, we'd listen to home economic classes where Warren would teach us how to please our husbands and stuff like that. I honestly can't think of a worse thing in my life than getting a home economics <laughs> course from Warren Jeffs. I'm so yeah, sorry. He had- he had recordings, you know, that he taught to the Elta Academy girls and they would, you know, broadcast those recordings to us at the other schools. Do you remember the kinds of stuff he was telling you? I remember specifically one time him trying to tell us how to accept correction from our husbands. Ugh. Good um, and go on. Like, <laughs> like, like sweetly and politely. And he's like, he said something like, you know, if you burn water, then, then you have to be able to accept the correction, you know, that your husband gives you for burning the water. And I was just thinking like, but you can't burn water. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. And honestly, like it, it puts women in this role of children, which is so interesting in this, con- you know, this like construct of abortion where 
women are supposed to be autonomous, but they're not, but yet they can't be trusted to make choices over their own bodies. So their children, you know, in a way. And yeah, can you imagine being a husband? I mean, I have, it's, I don't have a lot of like compassion for patriarchs, but I do have a lot of compassion for men placed in the system where they're supposed to now be married to five women and not be their partners or husbands. They're supposed to be their dads, you know, correcting these wayward teenage daughters. It's really messed up. You know, that's interesting to me because my sisters refer to Sam Bateman, who is their husband, right? They refer to him as father. Yeah. And that's an old frontier thing. Like, you know, if you read John D. Lee, his stuff, they called him father. So (laughs) gross. Yeah. I hate that so much. I'm so sorry. That's happening to your sisters. Yeah. So I've, I mean, they've, they've started talking to me a little bit, um, which is new, you know, they didn't used to talk to me. It's been years, but, um, is that, do you think that that's a sign that his power is waning or I, I just don't think that he's as smart as Warren, (laughs) right? Like Warren did know how to control his victims and maintain control over them by cutting off information and cutting off their you know, making rules like you can't talk to anyone on the outside. Right. But I think that he, Sam Bateman, he's, he's not that smart and he's trying to keep them as interested. And even my little sister said something about how Sam is a more fun prophet than Warren was. (laughs) That's like the lowest bar in history. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't know if that's a compliment, but (laughs) I mean, maybe he lets them play with toys or like have more music or, but that's, that's the frustrating thing when we're talking about like this abortion debate, when I think about like, you know, these Midwestern, you know, soccer moms who think that we're talking about murdering babies, they have no idea the reality for so many women that you and I know and love and grow up in Mm -hmm. there, these scenarios that they're talking about that they think abortion and these, and what this fight is really about for us is about, you know, some cute baby that we just don't want to take care of a baby. And it's, it's so much deeper. It runs into you sitting and having to think about the, the nightmare that your, your family is entangled in. Yeah. Like my, my um, niece, my youngest niece from my oldest brother, when she was like nine or 10 said, I can't wait until my body is ready to have a baby. Oh my gosh. Like that young. She's she just can't wait. That's like that's that's the information that's getting put into her head. And it's right, it's because they don't even understand that there's a whole world out there with options and right. it, it's like you know to I hate this comparison because I don't think it's quite right, but like the fact that I could never say no to a boy didn't allow for me to think about how that applied everywhere in my life. And when right. you think about this little girl who she thinks that there's, there's not an option to not be a mother. Right. She's grown up her whole life believing that is what her body is for. That is her only purpose. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what happens to the FLDS women who, whose bodies biologically for whatever reason, can't have babies. I had an aunt like that. Actually, she was a plural wife. She was a third wife. And it was always, we were always talking about it. It was almost like, it was like this, this overhanging shame over her, like all the time, all the time. We were constantly talking about it. And we never, you know, we never talked about the fact that like, this might be permanent, right? It was always like in the future, when you're worthy, then God will make it so that you're able to have kids. And so she lived her whole life thinking that she was unworthy 
and that there was something wrong with her because she couldn't have kids. It's so cruel. It's so cruel. And it's so like needlessly ignorant, right? It's right. I mean, we know so much more about reproductive health than we did a hundred years ago, than we did 200 years ago. Like the ideas that we, I mean, even 200 years ago, they understood that some people just couldn't have children and there was not because you were wicked, but I, that's, that's the frustrating thing is these ideas. I mean, this really is the sort of blunt end of these ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I know a woman in the AUB who she, I think I talked about this online. She had 11 kids and I think she had said throughout most of her life, she was either pregnant or nursing. Like there wasn't a time she wasn't. And so let's just talk about that. And from an autonomy standpoint, your body is literally like being used to grow or feed another human being. And that restricts a lot of your choices, a lot of the, the decisions you make are now not just decided around you, but around other people. And so when she got pregnant with her 12th, she, she was like, I, I cannot do this. I will, I struggle with depression. It's already hard for me. And she, I mean, to go really dark again, she was worried that not only would she hurt her new baby, that she would hurt herself, but she would hurt one of her other kids. She said she was on the edge of sanity And so for her, you know, she went and got, I would call the secret abortion because people in her community didn't know she did that for her children to, to save the lives and preserve the lives of the people that she had, because in her community, birth control is not a thing. You don't do that. Right. No, she actually believed that, like she believed in not taking birth control. And yet she knew like her limit in that way. And she never regretted it. And I thought that that was really interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. I have like a lot of respect for her for for doing that, you know, like for it, for being able to step out of, you know, what she, how she grew up and actually look at it from um, how do my ch- children benefit, you know, like putting that really putting them as a priority instead of putting oh however many children like the more children I produce the better off I am, you know, like how how a lot of how a lot of Mormon women are instead she was able to look and see how, how can I provide the current kids with a better quality of life with more of my attention, you know, and to be better. Yeah. Kids for. It's, it's such a responsible choice. And and I'm like you, when I heard that, I was like, wow, I wouldn't have ever even thought that was an option. You know, I, in my, my case, I had an ectopic pregnancy and it, the baby, the, it wasn't even a baby. It was the tissue was growing outside of my womb. And after it grew big enough, it would have killed me. And of, of course it wouldn't have been a viable pregnancy that the tissue would have never grown and survived. It just would have killed me. So mm-hmm. my very LDS doctor was like, you're getting rid of this. That is, we are doing a procedure and that's what's happening. And so we all accepted it until the nurse said the word abortion. It was like on the form. And I saw the word abortion and I said, wait, what is that? And she said, oh, this is an abortion. And I said, I'm having an abortion. And she said, yeah, that's what we call this procedure. And I stopped. I left the the room. I wouldn't let them do it because of the word. And then I went home and, you know, my very devout LDS family, not all of them. My mom was very supportive. She said, Lindsay, you have to do this. But there were people in my family with a lot of influence that tried to stop me knowing that the doctor said that I would die if this happened. And I actually, 
I spent probably five days putting it off. And my doctor was like, you can't put this off. It's just no. going to be more painful. But it was because that word had so much like meaning and baggage to it. I would have been fine with the procedure before it was the word and like the meaning yeah. we gave to it. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. That's horrible. I, I think it, I mean, I, w- I was talking to radio West about this cause they're doing a story on it. I don't know how you guys talked about this, but we have coded language for it. Like in our community, some women would have stillbirths or go get a DNC, you know, where they go, Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a medical pr- procedure if you're like, if the pregnancy isn't viable and, but they don't call it abortion. Did you guys do that? Was there like coded language around stuff that would happen? Well, I've, I've heard of um, some FLDS women who've had to go get a DNC and there was definitely still births and stuff like that, but yeah, never, never the term of the word abortion was not even a part of our language. I never even heard it until I was probably 16 and Warren started talking about you know, the mis until he started like kicking out the women who've had miscarriages. That's when I first heard this term. I'm curious, like there's a lot of trauma in the LDS community because for a long time we had an in-house uh, social services and adoption agency, LDS adoption. So uh, it's usually a teen mom, an unwed mother that gets pregnant that is heavily encouraged to give up her baby to an LDS family. And I know this because I, I had five miscarriages. I struggled with fertility. I really wanted to have babies, even though I was in my early twenties, because I struggled with that. We looked into the adoption process and I, I think like, what does an FLDS girl, surely I've heard stories of unwanted pregnancies. Did you know of any like girls that weren't married um, in cases of rape or who knows what else, what happens in those scenarios? Is adoption a thing in your community? Um, no, I can't say adoption was a thing. Um, there were certainly instances where children, you know, their their mom would die or something like that. And then the children would be given to someone else. Or if there was like multiple moms and they would just, you know, raise care for those children. But as a teenager, there was another teenage girl who ended up getting pregnant. And I remember because I sang in the choir and she was sitting near the front of the church. And I remember seeing her pregnant belly. <laughs> And she was unmarried, but she ended up getting kicked out because she got pregnant. So she was yeah, kicked out of the religion for that. What does that happen? I've heard stories of men, but very rarely girls. Do you know what happened to her? Um, I don't. I think she might have had a boyfriend. She probably went with him. I don't know exactly what happened after that. She just kind of disappeared, you know, because we weren't allowed to talk to apostates, you know. I know a story of another girl who was assaulted and got pregnant and how it was dealt with her family in the FLDS is she had the baby and it was given, she was quite young when she had the baby and they gave her baby to just uh, another woman and then the woman raised it. And that was just how they dealt with that situation. Have you heard of anything like that before? No, they must've just kept this like really secret. I heard. Um, I think because their family, like they were so poor, they were seen as lesser. That stigma was there probably because of the sexual abuse. Probably. Um, okay. Let's think about what other, is there anything else you want to talk about or drive home or just like tell people that you wish people would understand about this issue, especially since you lived it in a very concrete way? Well, I kind of wanted to drive home um, the fact that 
women, because the, the pro-life group, right, the, the anti-abortion movement, they're always about protecting and saving the babies, right? I wanted to drive home that women having choices is how we protect the babies. Because like with the genetic issues that I talked about in the FLDS, those children are suffering. And uh, children who are born to women who want them um, are very deeply cared for and loved. And these children who are born in that environment, they're not going to grow up and become mass murderers, right? Yeah. And so this is this is how we protect babies. We give women choice. Well, and I think about just the women in my life, like I said, if you would have asked us at 14, 15, 16, we would have told you, we would have all told you there are very few girls that would have said that they didn't want to have a family when they were older. And yet you talk to a lot of them now, a lot of them who have processed or left, left Mormonism. And they're like, I didn't want it. I didn't know I would what I was getting into. I would have been such a different parent if I would have had a child in my late thirties rather than in my early twenties. And in your community, it's so much worse. Like girls at 14, 15, and 16, I can't imagine the mother I would have been at that age. Like it's, <laughs> I, I, I was 23 when I had my first and that feels like a baby. I can't imagine having a child younger than that. So glad I was protected from that. I know. And, and that's, that's all it's about, right? Like being protect, like adding protection for people to make the best choices. I, I love babies. Me I do. We grew up to revere babies, right? I don't want to hurt them um, at all. It's opposite. And it's because I believe that, that I think, why are we doing this? I mean, if they could see the things that you and I have seen, that we have lived in our communities, that we see every day that you're seeing your sisters struggle with, your sisters, now that they're 13, 14, 15, whatever, navigating motherhood at that young age, they're going to make decisions to survive the, their belief system that are not ideal for a good life with babies that I think that a lot of pro-life folks would be appalled at. But that's what these, these ideas are putting women in the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Faith, thank you so much for coming on tonight and talking about this. I know it's a very personal subject to you, and I know that it still involves your family. And I just wanted to I thought your post was really powerful because it visually said something um, about the control of women. You know, a lot of people use the handmaid's tale Mm -hmm. allegory or whatever, but that's a reality for you. That was a reality. It's been a reality for black and indigenous women in our community who, whose bodies have never really been their own. Mm -hmm. And you know what that feels like because Mm -hmm. that was your life. Right. Yep, exactly. And in the in the picture too, um, I kind of liked how my dress was actually the same color as the handmaiden's tail dresses. <laughs> I know. I uh, so would you I be thought, okay if I used it for the podcast? You can say no yeah. if you don't want it out there. Okay. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I'll put that photo up then if you're okay with that on yeah. the cover and so people can see because that's you. You're a living, breathing, breathing person. What would you have said when that picture was, was taken? What would you have said about having babies? Do you think you would have said you wanted that? Oh, a hundred percent, hundred percent. In fact, how I think I was probably 17 in that picture, 16 or 17, maybe, I don't know, maybe a little younger, but, uh, 
I thought that the perfect age to have children was 16. So I was feeling kind of like I was becoming an old maid because oh I hadn't, <laughs> because I hadn't been married um, and had, you know, started having kids yet. So that's what my mentality was when that photo was taken. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It's so, uh, well, I, I think it's so amazing that you're out. I'm so sorry for your sisters. Is there any ask that you have that people could do to like help and support you or support your family? just care, just try, try to understand people's point other, you know, other points of view from your own and try to actually care about people. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah. And, and it's, it's not, this is the, the one takeaway I want my audience to have after this. It is not simple. Uh, it's not as simple as selfish women who just want to go have sex and abort their babies. Although I do support that right too, because I don't think selfish, careless women should be mothers. Just right, exactly. <laughs> Fair point. I've seen I have seen selfish, careless people uh, even give up their babies for adoption, and babies are formed and traumatized in the womb, and and that stuff is real. I've seen adoptive parents that have have adopted, you know, babies with fetal alcohol syndrome, it affects generations. These are decisions that affect people and reinforce poverty for generations. But even then it's not that simple. Like it, it boils down to, there are women in America today, like your sisters, it is 2022 and this is happening. And everyone's will say, well, that's horrible. Why can't it stop? Well, it can't stop because we have attitudes like this today at the, at the end of the day, it's on that spectrum we talk about where people sort of believe that women are supposed to be in these roles. Right. That's where the apathy comes from. Do you think it's possible? Is it as simple as getting, you know, Sam Bateman in jail? Um, I don't think so because whenever an FLDS leader goes to jail, another one pops up. And also because my, my family, my sisters, they're so conditioned to be dependent on a, on a, on a, on a leader. Right. And so I think that they look for that. It's it's like a whole, their whole mindset, the way that they are, who they are is they look for that. And so they'll find it, you know? Yeah. Well, because women of course can't be expected to make decisions for themselves. Right. So how, how am I supposed to survive if I don't have a man? You know, I had that same mentality. How how I can't like when I left the FLDS, I left with a man because I did not think that I could survive in the outside world without a man. I I've had to like again, it's hard for me to compare because I do think that your experiences were a lot more acute. I had a lot more resources than you did. I had access to the internet. I knew how to have a checking account and, and I had a public education. But I do, I it was hard for me when I got divorced from my Mormon husband, I am still unpacking that stuff and realizing like, I'm not even kidding. Two years into my divorce, it was still every day. It felt like a miracle that I was surviving on my own. Like it wasn't supposed to happen that way. Yeah. I still often have that feeling. Do you? Yeah. 10 years later. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. How my sisters like are right now. And I can see how deep they are into it. I'm like, how did I get out of that? Well, I do have to say, I mean, just from the outset, watching like your story, you seem so powerful and amazing and articulate and like strong. 
And I think that that's, it's been really inspiring. So I, it's, I really feel grateful that you gave your time and emotional energy to come on today. Oh, totally. I, I feel the same about you, like kind of intimidated a little bit because you're so popular. <laughs> don't, don't, I mean, I, I, I don't because you're the one that had courage that I think, you know, 99% of the world will never be able to understand the courage it took to, to live, uh, to fight for your own consent, to fight for your own personhood. I think, I think it's truly, truly brave, especially, uh, you know, it's already hard to be a woman in this world. It's hard to be a woman in America. Um, but to be a fundamentalist Mormon FLDS woman is really, really challenging. You don't have resources. And so, yeah, you've, you're an inspiration. So yeah, I would, I would tell everyone, the audience, uh, take, take Faith's word for it. If you want to honor her story, care, develop a little bit more nuance around this topic, because we know what the, the end of these arguments look like in a very real way. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.